Hello and welcome to the Death Science Podcast, where we explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. Subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can find the audio on all major podcast platforms and you can find the video on YouTube at www.catacomb.tv. You can learn a whole lot more about the show at deathscience.org. Welcome to episode number nine. Today's guest is Dr. James Lake. He's an author, teacher, psychiatrist, and so much more. We'll be talking about near-death experiences, death anxiety, grief, his time in Tibet, and a lot more. But before we get started, I want to talk about catacombculture.com. This is where I sell my sculptures. My sculptures being functional home decor I make out of hyper-realistic human bones. From human bone lamps to food-safe skull bowls, I make a lot of memento mori friendly pieces that serve as reminders that our lifespans are limited, so let's make the best out of the time we have left. You can explore my bone gallery at catacombculture.com. Also, restinggrounds.org will guide you in exploring alternative post-life care for your deceased body. Your deceased body has the potential to literally save lives, advance multiple fields of science, and so much more. Learn more at restingground.org. Now, let's meet James and explore new perspectives on life, death, dying, and the dead. So on this episode, we're here with Dr. James Lake, published author, and he's on several boards. He's also a professor. Welcome to the catacombs, James Lake. How are you? Thank you. Doing fine. How are you? Good, good. Um, okay, so let's dive right into it. I found your work through an article you published based on near-death experiences. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your findings are on near-death experiences? Sure. Yeah, um, so I'm a psychiatrist. I work in California. And uh, a side interest that's indirectly related to my work with patients is the near-death experience. This is a common experience that millions of people have every year in every culture across the globe. Near-death experience means that uh, at a time of um, impending death, whether it's caused by extreme fear or during a medical crisis, uh, during surgery or after a heart attack, for example, uh, people tend to have this very remarkable experience that consists of many features, often the feeling of um, going out of the body, the feeling of uh, going through a long tunnel. Many people report uh, uh, seeing or reconnecting with, with people who they have known in the past who've died. Some people come back, um, and uh, many people come back from these experiences, of course, who recover from their uh, medical crisis. And reporting that they're no longer afraid of death, they're confident uh, that when the time comes, when they ultimately do pass away, they can face it with much less fear. Some people have a kind of a wisdom that emerges from the experience um, because they've gone deeper in their own spiritual development. Some people become more spiritual after a near-death experience, um, not uh, limited to or uh, correlated with degree of spirituality before the experience happens. People who are agnostic or from any ethnic or religious background have them to an equal extent. Hmm. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. I published quite a few papers on this, um, theory papers. Uh, one paper that I've recently published has to do with a, a theory um, on how the capacity, if you will, or uh, evolved and humans, perhaps other 
higher mammals, I think, um, for a predisposition to have this experience, maybe other experiences like it, like out-of-body experiences. Mm. How, how does that serve us? How does the capacity to have this experience serve us through evolutionary time, how it was shaped evolutionarily? So that's really interesting. Another paper was a theory about um, proposing a, a neural model, what may happen in the brain. There are complex mechanisms that may be involved in the brain that may mediate or manifest this kind of experience. So something of great interest to me. On the clinical mm -hmm. side, um, uh, I work with patients um, almost every day who have lost loved ones or who are grieving or are facing their own death because they have, they're working with a uh, serious illness or a fatal illness. So they want to process their own concerns, their grieving over loved ones or their own um, psychological concerns and efforts to prepare psychologically for their own dying. And uh, oftentimes we get to the point of talking about um, near-death experiences and uh, how if they suggest what it may be like when one actually dies, it, it takes away a lot of anxiety. It takes away a lot of anxiety in the last moments before physical death. So it's uh, and from a clinical perspective, as a clinical psychiatrist, it's often um, helpful, reassuring to many people who are getting older, facing a fatal illness, or who have lost uh, loved ones, um, so they can get a sense of what they they may have experienced in the final moments. Hmm. Now, do you have any advice for those that may have some sorts of uh, death anxieties or death denial even? Mm -hmm. So in Western culture, um, there's uh, a huge undertone of what we call denial of death. In fact, there's a classic book written, I believe, in the 70s, early 80s, called The Denial of Death mm -hmm. by Becker. Yep, and yep. if people listen to this, you're familiar with that. Yep. Uh, so it's a, it's a very frequent um, meme, if you will, dominant meme in Western culture. And non-Western cultures, it's not such a dominant meme. meme. They embrace um, death and the idea of dying, and they develop equanimity around prospect of mortality and, and dying. But in Western culture, there tends to be, um, as I'm sure people who listen to your podcast already know very well, a kind of collective or corporate denial of death at the level of society. Mm. We dress it up, we avoid it. People who have yeah. been deceased are made up um, by morticians who appear to be not only alive, but vital and youthful. And we seal them over, put them in the ground, um, and we avoid facing death and images of death directly. It's disturbing to our psyches. So in terms of facing fears of death or uh, working through this uh, kind of collective social of, of denial of death, I think um, there are psychological approaches that are beneficial and, of course, uh, many spiritual approaches. In um, Western religions, uh, there's meditative prayer, almost a meditative prayer in the Catholic faith, the Jesuits practice where they become closer to the idea of being comfortable and accepting of the idea of their mortality so that by the time their time comes, they can be at peace. In Buddhism, of course, and particularly Tibetan Buddhism, um, there's the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, a more recent kind of uh, uh, view of that interpretation by uh, Rinpoche, a very adept teacher of Tibetan Buddhism. It's called Tibetan Book of Living and Dying where he interprets that for Western minds and talks about the significance 
of uh, dying and death rituals from a Buddhist perspective, providing very, um, I think, practical, also wise counsel to people who are facing death or working with someone who is dying. So Tibetan Book of Living and Dying is very beneficial. It's filled with both practical advice as well as wisdom from that perspective. Um, day to day, uh, if people are facing dying or working with someone who is dying, um, I think it's often beneficial to work with a therapy, uh, with a therapist, of course. Uh, usually in uh, individual therapy is more effective than group therapy if you're facing um, the prospect of your own death or that of a loved one. Um, it, can, it can bring um, reassurance, perspective. You can learn coping skills, managing your anxiety, of course, uh, day to day. Uh, at a more basic level, when I'm working with people, uh, I just worked with several patients this morning who have had uh, serious illnesses, one whom almost died uh, last month during open heart surgery, and um, practical uh, coping skills that are often effective for patients who have these complex medical issues who are kind of on the edge of illnesses and have faced the prospect of dying many times involve doing uh, simple mindfulness practices, deep breathing exercises, some kind of simple uh, gentle yoga, for example, yogic breathing, using guided visualizations, so forth, making sure you keep to the bottom line in terms of getting adequate sleep, um, uh, eating healthy foods, avoiding unnecessary stresses, of course, psychotherapy, the process, you know, your fears and your concerns going forward to the next, uh, to whatever you may be facing. Are you um, familiar with assisted psychotherapy, like using MDMA, uh, psilocybin, DMT? Are you, you know, I've read about it. I haven't used it in my own practice. <clears throat> I have read about it, and I've read about um, how beneficial it is for people yeah. uh, to, uh, in the last moments of life or in the last weeks, um, to have a therapist-assisted uh, MDA, MDMA or psilocybin psychedelic journey to get to deeper insights, and my understanding is to get to what we call an abreaction to release some some built-up or perhaps repressed intense emotions or conflicts, so you get mm -hmm. to a point of clarity and closure on issues that you may not have adequately addressed psychologically or spiritually until the last moments of life. I've read consistent reports that it works quite well, however, I have no expertise in this. Um, uh, so I think that's... Uh, a promising approach, and I hope that it becomes more mainstream as time as time goes on. I think it can benefit um, many people in the last stages of life, and hopefully give them peace and and also greater insights about who they are psychologically, existentially. Well said. Yeah. Now, do you find any uh, differences between Eastern versus Western? Uh, mm -hmm mental therapy for the grieving or any kind of advice mm -hmm. that differs between the two? Yeah, I can't speak to forms of therapy uh, used in Eastern traditions. I'm not familiar with that. I know there are specialized forms of psychotherapy used in Japan, but I'm not, I don't have a lot of knowledge on those <clears throat> uh, in terms of how to approach grieving and so forth. I think it's, I think uh, from an Eastern perspective, from having been in Tibet a few times and in China and in the Himalayas broadly, I, th I think that the, um, and, and uh, talked with healers there and so forth, um, and uh, actually witnessed a sky burial in Tibet. I think, I think they're very um, 
objected, objective and, and I guess you could say uh, practical, empirically grounded mm-hmm. in how they approach this. For example, uh, typically they will leave a person after death in the home undisturbed for at least three to five days, maybe maybe many more days, because of the belief that if you disturb the physical body, you disturb the, the spirit or the chi, the essential energy, uh, as it transitions from the physical plane to the to the spiritual plane. And so because that's built in as a tradition in the culture of the Himalayas and so forth, I think people grow up seeing this, witnessing as, witnessing this as kind of part of a normal cultural background. Mm-hmm. So that helps take away the fear, not only of death, but the dying process leading up to that. And then people go in, and in some cultures, uh, can't name them now, there, there are some really interesting cultural traditions where people keep the uh, deceased person dressed, clothed, sit them up at the table, they have conversations with them, thinking maybe in Tanataraja and Sulawesi, one of the Indian, Indonesian islands, they may do something like that, if I recall. But there are, there's a variety of cultural approaches to uh, not only uh, working with people and then managing individuals and communities around their fear uh, of death or psychological mm-hmm. set, if you will, to approach the idea of death and mortality, but also in working with uh, the bodies, the human bodies remains following physical death, um, reflecting a broad range of cultural beliefs, spiritual traditions, and so forth. Mm. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that you experienced a sky burial. Maybe for the audience who are unfamiliar with the sky burial is, do you want to talk about your experiences there? Yeah, well, I, I witnessed one from a distance, respectfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was trekking in Tibet about uh, almost 20 years ago, um, they, uh, basically sky burial means that the deceased, after the appropriate time, uh, remaining still, undisturbed, in a sacred place with with ideally the blessings of a Lama in the community having been completed, uh, will be brought to a place um, up high on a mountaintop. There is a designated uh, person or persons who then uh, dismember the body, um, uh, take apart the body, uh, and uh, and scatter the remains, the flesh and the bones in the area where um, um, vultures uh, are very familiar, and other birds of prey are very familiar with this practice, so they know that these ritual rituals are taking place in these particular uh, high areas that are considered sacred to Tibetan Buddhists. And and then the the birds, the vultures will come and consume the remains, uh, and so forth, the bones, the pulverized bones in the flesh, bring that up into heaven. Uh, that will be transmuted, of course indirectly into other forms of life over time. Mm. The idea is that the body and, uh, is impermanent. It's a ritual uh, that can be interpreted in a very sophisticated way from, from my knowledge as a person who has some limited understanding of this practice. <clears throat> the idea is that this ritual is, uh, is an emblematic of embracing impermanence and non-attachment to the physical body following death. Mm. So um, we were able to observe uh, one of these from a distance on a mountaintop and um, as it was happening, and uh, we, were, we happened to be there at that time. And uh, the people, as I say, the people go about this in a very matter-of-fact way. It, it, it's something that's done at the end of physical life and so forth. It's the next step. 
it's a way of, uh, you know, appropriately managing the remains and symbolically letting go of attachment. Mm -hmm. So in your opinion, um, what is a healthy way to grieve? What does that look like? It's a very good question. Um, now, understandably, that everyone grieves in their own way, but in your thank opinion. You. Exactly. Uh, it depends on each person's unique perspective, um, how fragile or resilient they may be psychological, of course, their cultural and spiritual background, their beliefs, and so forth. Um, it's about respecting each individual's unique cultural and spiritual frame and what is meaningful for them in terms of what they do uh, within culture and then within their spiritual religious um, system to get through grieving. Having said that, um, there is a point in uh, Western psychiatry, I think this is a valid argument, um, a time after which if there is ongoing grieving and severe grieving, uh, we tend to uh, view grieving as, um, as a warning sign of, of depression that may last following a period of time of so-called normal grieving. Um, so there's a, there's a balance, if you will, between um, giving an individual uh, space, psychological space, and facilitating a grief process in psychotherapy or uh, group therapy. Uh, and on the one hand, and on the other hand, of identifying warning signs of severe depression that might persist for um, a long period of time following loss, um, which can be debilitating to a person. And, and it's a matter, again, of a clinical perspective uh, that's probably different in different cultures as to when that line is crossed. Um, mm. I think people are probably uh, more conservative about that line and where that line may exist in Western cultures than they are in some Eastern cultures. Because I think there's this country is over, and other Western countries are over medicalized. And if there's mm -hmm. some depression, there's a medication. If there's anxiety, mm -hmm. there's a medication, and so forth. Okay. So there's there's a balance, and it's as you as you mentioned, uh, Jeremy, it's uh, appropriate depending on each person's unique cultural, spiritual perspective, how fragile or resilient they are, and so forth. How long the grieving process has continued, and whether that grieving process has become a kind of a persisting uh, experience of depression that might be interfering with day-to-day -day functioning. What would advice be if someone is experiencing, uh, say, grief or uh, existential crisis and they're, they're looking for help, but they might not know what kind of help they're even looking for? I think that in most communities, there are um, therapists uh, who uh, lead grief support groups and who advertise themselves as uh, doing grief work, either individually or in support groups. There are, um, so uh, my advice to people would be to um, look on the internet and identify resources local to you. And then once you find people who, who are advertising uh, their expertise as people who do work individually or lead support groups for grieving, contact them. Uh, see whether you feel comfortable uh, based on a phone conversation with them as to whether you could do work with them individually or in a group context. In, in the Western model of, of this, which has a lot of strong points to it, uh, Western mental health care, we typically advise people to begin by 
individual therapy. And then if there's a need ongoing down the road um, to transition to group therapy or a combination of individual and group therapy. So um, find local um, uh, therapists who have expertise and experience. Um, determine what kind of therapy, if any, would be appropriate for you. And many people um, in this culture um, uh, do, I think, very good work with their pastor or their rabbi or the imam. Um, I think a lot of spiritual and religious leaders are very skilled and very effective at assisting people through grief and loss. <clears throat> so, of course, that's another important resource. So as we wrap up this interview, uh, is there anything else that you want to mention? My view is that uh, people uh, who care for themselves physically and psychologically day to day, year to year, are probably uh, more ready and more resilient when the time comes when they may face a fatal illness and have to deal with their own fear and ambivalence about the prospect of dying or when they face the imminent death of a loved one. Um, so good self-care, uh, ongoing care, both uh, physical and mental care, emotional care, are important for preparing a, a strong base, if you will, for resilience for that inevitable time that comes in all of our lives when we will die and have to go through probably a lot of discomfort or pain or worse mm -hmm. when a loved one will die. And then um, think proactively uh, as you get closer, if you can predict that. But the coronavirus is difficult to predict these days. Um, but uh, be proactive and, um, and think about um, how uh, you would best, uh, how you would most benefit from work toward the end of your lifetime or how a loved one may not um, have the capacity to do such proactive planning would, would best benefit from uh, working with a therapist or a spiritual guide toward the final days. And so you can put together a, you know, a planful approach that fits your needs mm -hmm. or the needs of a loved one. Great. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about you, where can they go? It's now uh, progressivepsychiatry.com. Mm -hmm. Because there are two or three that have almost the same name and the same ending. So all my, my books and, uh, and uh, publications and some presentations are there. But uh, also, you know, it's, it's, um, there's a page that um, I put together over the years, which has uh, really um, some of the better web resources on all aspects of integrative psychiatry, which is what I do, about finding reliable natural supplements, finding uh, well-trained healers of different stripes mm -hmm. and so on. They can use it as a resource page. Great. Well, thank hey. you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Yeah, enjoyed meeting the two of you. Thank you. I, I appreciate your time and thank you for every all the work that you're doing. Thank you. My pleasure. Appreciate what you do. Thank you for watching the Death Science Podcast. For updates and new episodes, subscribe right now. It's quick at deathscience.org. Remember that we almost die one day, so talk to your loved ones now about your post-life plans for your body. Learn more about creative and beneficial post-life plans at restinggrounds.org. I'm your host, Jeremy, signing off. Thank you and memento mori.